Our guest today is Greg Makoff, who occupies many roles. I think he's a, a senior fellow at CG uh, and also at the Harvard Kennedy School. But we're most excited to talk to Greg today about his book, which is coming out, I think, officially you know, on February 1st with the Georgetown University Press. And the book is called Default the landmark battle over Argentina's $100 billion debt restructuring. And we were super interested to talk to Greg, uh, in part because Argentina's been so much in the news again um, lately. Um, in some ways, it seems it never really goes out of the news uh, if for debt-related um Debt-related problems and interesting uh, litigation-related questions about whether Argentina's many creditors can uh, wring any money out of it. And and Greg has thought and written a lot about that very question in the context of this book. So we're we're super excited to talk to him. Greg, thanks so uh, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on. I love the show and I love the global community of sovereign debt experts that you guys create we 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 um do our best although um really the podcast is for our moms but um <laughs> but we have we do have some other listeners too which which makes us happy um the uh can we just start with sort of a broad question there are so many connections i think between the book and what's going on uh, with Argentina today but maybe just as overview it would help if you gave us um uh, uh, your sense of the main takeaways from the book, uh, kind of the main the main lessons uh, that you draw out of it, and then we can go from there. Okay. Well, it's a different kind of book. And to start with, everybody's heard about Argentina. And what I'm talking about is the 2001 default and the 15 years of debt restructuring and litigation that followed. Well, most countries will restructure in a couple months or a couple years. This is the really the one that became a total mess. And in response to that, the coverage of it, there's been hundreds and hundreds of articles, law review articles, newspaper articles, but nobody's put the whole story together. So like the elephant, someone does the front hoof, the back hoof, the tusks, the trunk, nobody's put it all together. So I put that whole story together in one place and it matters because they're all all the parts are connected with each other. So it's really a complete coverage of that chapter in Argentina's history from 2001 to 2016. A new chapter is beginning. So it is a good time to read history. What do we learn from the last chapter about what's coming next? And what's kind of surreal is a lot of the same issues are coming up and a lot of the same people are involved. For example, the last chapter um, Luis Caputo and Santiago Basili are key characters, and now they're key figures in the new government. So, what is what is the elephant? If I can, uh, if I can enter, uh, ask it um, that way. So, we've got people have looked at little pieces of it, but not the at the whole elephant. Is there a whole elef elephant here? Like a some kind of organizing theme to the story, or some um, important takeaway? Well. Um... It's sort of a grand tour of everything sovereign debt because Argentina and its creditors and the IMF trip over all the issues, all the legalities, all the policies, all the financial problems. And it the action travels from Argentina to Washington, to New York, to Italy, to Africa, 
to the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea. And but as a story, it's really about Judge Grisey's big decision to impose the injunction and Argentina's response of President Kirchner and Minister of Economy Kisilov to default rather than pay up, which was an equally extraordinary decision. So two-thirds of the book is organized around the lead-up to that decision. The last third is the consequences of that decision. The last chapter, the surprising turning of the tables in Argentina's negotiation of the settlement terms. And unlike an academic book, it's really written as a drama. So you see the case being made in Judge Grisey's chambers. You hear Argentina's side fighting with the creditor side, pointing fingers at each other's making legal arguments. And you have to sit in Judge Grisey's head saying, what would I do if I were faced with this terrible decision? And Judge Grisey did not lightly make the decision to impose the injunction. So it's, it's really about why did he do it? But along the way, you go through the world and the issues of sovereign debt. So, Greg, um, first, thank you for writing this book, because I certainly plan to use it in class. And it's a delightful read, unlike so many sovereign debt books, alas, including ones that I have written. This one's actually a pleasure to read. So you at least in my view, uh, you do succeed in telling a dramatic story. And it, it, the events, as Mark and I also lived through them, certainly seemed dramatic even at the time they were happening. But um, let me just, just to clarify the big picture story, you responded to Mark by saying that the centerpiece is Judge Grisey's decision, uh, and particularly the decision to impose the injunction. So if we were to step back and ask what this story is about um, a little more broadly, is it about the American judiciary, uh, the federal courts? Is it about Judge Grisey, the individual, an idiosyncratic individual, according to some? Uh, is it about Argentina uh, continuing to default and fight battles that it would likely lose? Is it about Kisilov and Christina Kirchner uh, gambling with uh, money of the Argentine people and then losing and sticking them with the bill? Or is it about lawyers on Argentina's side utterly goofing things up? Or last but not least, is it about the rise of the specialist holdout creditor who's just smarter than other people? I'm sorry, that was like seven options. But for me, they, these are all different perspectives from which one can tell the big story. And I, I'm still not sure of which of those stories is central. You had mentioned uh, Judge Grisey as being central. And so maybe you could elaborate 
a little bit more. Okay, well, the book has many layers to it. And you're asking me about the layers. The reason I mentioned Judge Grisey as a writer, you need to structure a plot, you have to structure your chapters, and you have to have a central theme and character. And that's definitely Judge Grisey. But you're asking thematically, if I'm speaking to a sovereign debt expert, which is you and your audience here, I'd say this book documents why we have aggregated collective action clauses. If you go 100 years from now, I'll bet you they're still in use. And some law student asked the law professor, why do sovereign bonds have these funny clauses? And the answer is, oh, that Argentina litigation, read that book. So it was a horribly messy litigation because the rules of the game were broken. And maybe it doesn't need an SDRM, but it certainly needs collective action clauses because when the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act gave everyone the independent right to sue and enforce, that opened the bottle to a lot of problems. So I see it much more broadly. I don't personalize it. I don't personalize it. Governments do what governments do. Hedge funds do what hedge funds do. You meet them, you hear them talk, you hear them litigate, you hear them point fingers at each other, but at the very highest level, what I care about is the architecture and having this case study show people how the players play so that if they're going to refine the architecture further, they have a good model in their heads how it really works. So it's interesting that you link it to the aggregated collective action clauses, these tools for letting a supermajority of bondholders effectively cram down restructuring terms on uh, dissenting creditors and you know presumably on the theory that that mechanism is going to do away with holdouts in the future that actually leads me to a, a question that you write about a bit in the book but I'm hoping you can say um you can kind of shed some light on it it, it seems from a technical perspective, like Argentina actually had more tools at its disposal to deal with holdouts when it conducted its restructuring, uh, more tools than than people often think. And, and in particular, there was um, a potential to use exit consents to significantly weaken the kind of the the hand that holdouts would be would be holding after that and yet argentina didn't do that they just uh, they didn't take any steps as far as i can tell um any meaningful steps to limit their exposure to holdout litigation and i'm wondering if we have a sense of why not in your research which and i know you talked to tons of people this is a you know a story where you've uh, you've um, you tried to get at the you know the underlying events as they happen so what do we learn about that decision okay i have a kind of long answer here and i'll go back to the last thing me too said and then go into your question which is he had suggested one of the themes is the rise of the holdout creditors and I would say one of the broad themes of the book is the rise and fall of the holdout creditors, because one of the chapters goes through Elliott versus Peru. That's the fourth chapter after you go through the Argentina's 2005 debt restructuring. It's where you meet Elliott's team, the head of the firm, the, the portfolio managers, their outside lawyer, 
and you get to learn about Champerty defense, which people are talking about now, and you get to learn about Perry Passu and the injunction that was given in Belgium in 2000. And that's relevant because you're coming with Argentina, which is a much bigger default, and you're asking the question mark, well, why didn't they try to defend against holdouts? And the answer is they did try to. In a not very well-known hearing in January 15, 2004, there was a preliminary hearing on Perry Passu in October 2003, right after Argentina proposed its first offer in Dubai, Argentina reached out to one of the plaintiffs, was Dart at the time, Elliot wasn't there yet, and said, we hear you're bringing a Perry Passu attack against us. We don't think that works because they were trying to stir up litigation to get Judge Grisset to rule that no Perry Passu injunction would be given in New York. They knew about the Peru risk and they tried to head it off and it failed quite dramatically in January 2004, the day before the hearing, Elliot, who had sued but had not shown its hand because it was still hid hidden behind a Cayman Island company, showed up in the name of that company with a letter to Judge Grisset rec reciting all the arguments on Perry Passu and saying it's too early to rule. And Judge Grisset looked at it because the litigation was being brought up by Argentina, not by the plaintiffs. And... There hadn't been discovery, and Judge Grisset listened to Jonathan Blackman, Argentina's counsel, hear all these arguments in the story of Peru, and he said, oh, that's really weird. That's an odd interpretation of the Perry Passu Clause. But he said, you know, it's this guy, NML Capital, whoever they are, they're kind of right, and it's, it's too early to rule on this. And so... They tried to kill what they thought was the black swan of Perry Passu, but they didn't. And the question you're asking about is in 2005, a year later, why didn't the offering document have an exit consent? For those who don't know, Argentina's bonds, like most bonds, with a 50% or two-thirds vote of the holders can do certain things. This is before CACs which is the word we use for bonds that can change money terms, like restructure bonds, but bonds have long allowed with 50% or two-thirds to change covenants. Argentina could have had a vote and associated with its exchange to strip the Perry Passu clauses from its bonds, which it could have done, and it had a reason to do because it was fully knowledgeable about the Perry Passu attack against Peru, and the question is, why didn't they do it? And why didn't they do it when Uruguay in 2003 and Ecuador in 2000 had included exit consents? Just for information, U.S. corporate debt restructurings include exit consents all the time. So for liability management people like I used to be, it's a normal thing. Um, Argentina's reason asking 20 years later was, oh, it was too complicated. The deal was already complicated enough. So it's a bit of a mystery and a lost opportunity, um, but they didn't include one. So, Greg, just because this has puzzled me and fascinated me for a long time, and you're the first one to really squarely address it, but we want to know more because you've you've talked to everybody uh, 
my impression is, or you've talked to more people than anybody else has, and you've done more digging. The law firm that has represented Argentina for time immemorial, and that was representing Argentina all through these events, Cleary Gottlieb, Cleary had litigated the Peru case. Cleary had executed the exit consent strategy in both Ecuador and Uruguay successfully to do the restructuring. They internally knew about the risk of Paripasu. They knew how to do exit consents. And their lawyers chose not to use it. This is truly bizarre. Now, I'm presuming that somebody on the client side in Argentina has to take the blame for this. Somebody made the choice, we're just not going to do the restructuring in the safest, most effective way to A, eliminate holdouts, and to B, kill Paripasu. Because the story you just described about what happens in 2004, and I remember that those events well at that hearing, it doesn't kill Paripasu, it just keeps it alive. So they know they know there are these two things they, they need to do, and they had the votes to do it in 2005. Somebody's got to take the blame. It, it, it can't be that it's sort of this. I've heard this too complex story. I mean, they have to have an explanation for why it is too complex, because as you said, exit consents are not particularly complicated. They used all the time in corporate deals. And by this time, it's really trivially easy to use in the sovereign context, too. So somebody made the choice to screw over Argentina internally. And Elliot must have been dancing a like they must have been dancing a jig. They're like, what is wrong with these idiots? Well, me too. Um, I I used to advise countries on deals, and um, doing these deals is really tough. This was a complicated deal. One hundred and fifty-two different bonds, seven different currencies, eight different laws. Investors all over the world, problems with the IMF, problems with the economy, rufos and lock laws and economic disclosure. The document was as big as a phone book. You had to get it through the SEC. You had to get it through the Italian consob. You had to get through the German regulator. And it was a nightmare. And they were trying to launch it in November of four, and they kept having regulatory delays. So you add more and more features. I understand it was complicated. It's a risk management question is, do you let something you might have had go because you're trying to manage the whole process? Look, I'm like you and I'm with Mr. Bookheit. You've written about exit consents. I've used them. I love them. And that was a question I asked everybody about. And I got as far as I can digging around on the answer. But this is hardly the only question in the book where I bring it up and highlight an important issue and say, there was this decision made that really matters, but it's still a bit unclear um, exactly why it was made. And, that you know, after the fact, you wish you'd done everything differently. Um, there were, let's just say there were 10 or 12 off-ramps between 
defaulting and the Perry Pass ruling and the redefault in 2014, this is only one of multiple opportunities to head off the disaster that occurred. So we can just check that box and talk about some other ones too. Well, I mean, it is so like, I, I, I understand you to be saying, first of all, I understand that you may not want to speculate, although of course for us, that's the, that's the fun part. Mm-hmm. And I get that the deal is complicated and I get that the deal is one that's moving quickly. And yet it also seems to be a, uh, a restructuring in which participating creditors were thinking quite hard about the risks that holdouts p- might pose down the road. I mean, we have some unusual features of the restructuring. We have the you know, rights on future offers uh, part of it. And then ultimately the lock law that Argentina enacted to kind of tie its hands to prevent it from paying holdouts. So I I guess one way, that's not a question, it's a statement, but one way you could convert it into a question is just by saying, why, given all of that focus on holdouts, why not do the simple thing and take away one of their their, um, primary tools, which is, of course, just asking you to speculate again and see if I can have any luck that way. Hold on, hold on. The the other thing is to take in the direction (laughs) of the lock law. Like what... That's another giant blunder that Argentina did. Who do, who's responsible for that one? Well, let me let me answer it because those two go together in my mind exactly as you asked it. In a sense, for me, is there was some legal risk in the exit consent. There hadn't really been case law in a sovereign case, so you were adding a little bit of incremental risk by adding an exit consent. And since you had all these other unique features, maybe it was safer to exclude it. And you had all this complexity with all these different securities regulators around the world. So maybe you'll just drop the exit consent you might have wished you had. Being conservative. So it's a matter of judgment. It's not bad faith. It's no it's nobody trying to trick anyone. But then you have the law claw, which is really legally risky. Lee Bokite had written an article back in 1991 that the one thing you don't want to do is pass a law saying you're not going to pay. And so um on the exit consent issue, you're very conservative. And then on the law clock issue, you're not conservative at all. You've taken a lot of legal risk. But then that's when I talk about the off ramps. The country could have done the lock law and then taken it off. The Congress could have voted it out. And they could have voted it out after 2010 when the Perry Passu litigation, but they kept it on. So the lock law definitely upset. Judge Grisey, um, and eventually lowering the lock law was part of the deal to release the injunction. So it was something that was a dynamic tool that was used non-dynamically. Um, but it's it's there's an oddity there, and I would frame it as an inconsistency of legal advice and legal re- risk-taking between those two decisions. I wouldn't just pick out the exit consent decision because there was a judgment made in the context of all the fun facts and circumstances to take a low risk on that factor. So, so Greg, um, uh, on the lock law, and I, part of what I'm curious about is the details of, you know, who is making these decisions? So if they thought there was risk with legal risk with exit consents, which by 2005, like, 
what what legal risk? I mean, this had passed muster multiple times and had been passing muster since the late 80s in the corporate context. So, I mean, presumably they the lawyers write a memo to the client saying we can do this. And then the client is making a decision saying this is too risky. I, I would think that, that, that let me let me finish because this is just the beginning. I, you know, I would if I were in Argentina, I would want an audit to find out who the hell is making these decisions and based on what. But then they, then, as you say, they pass the lock law. So this we're being too careful is inconsistent with the we are being truly asinine because our own lawyers have explained in their interpretation of the Paripasu clause, that the one thing that is a violation of the Paripasu clause is to pass a law like this. Now, everybody doesn't agree with that interpretation. Certainly, Elliot didn't agree with the interpretation. But then Argentina does the one thing that its own lawyers are saying is a violation. Like, so where's the legal memo saying, don't do this, and who in the Argentine Ministry of Finance is saying, no, we're going to do this, even though we're going to lose in U.S. federal courts. And that's going to be OK, because we're just going to be able to say fuck you to the Argentine, to the U.S. courts. It, somebody has to take responsibility for these decisions. And my impression is nobody other than you is actually asking the questions of, how, how did these things happen? Well, me too. You've just done something important. Is some people are saying, "Well, before- I swore I'm not supposed to swear no. on the podcast." I'm sorry, our no. audience member. Sorry, no, Greg. no. But but there's something important here that the title of the book is the landmark um, court battle over Argentina's hundred billion debt restructuring, by which we mean the 2001 default and the 2005 restructuring. Why does it take 100 pages to get to the litigation? And the answer is, we need to fully explain the 2005 debt restructuring and how these features of the deal came about. Argentina's relationship with the IMF, its reliance on these aggressive features, and the RUFO. The RUFO proves a problem in 2014. Because it's still alive and the country wants to settle, perhaps, but it's got six months to run. So you can't understand the litigation until you understand these weird features, because they're core to the story of what happens in court. Why the lock law and the question of why not take it down later when the court gets agitated about it? I've heard various stories about the source of the lock law. Um one fact is is it said that um, Adam Larrick, who represented the Abra, which was the German retail German retail organization, it was an Irish company that collected retail investors and gave them receipts and had the power to come into the deal for them. It was really rather clever as a way to consolidate retail holders represented over a billion of holders. He had the idea of the Rufo because he didn't want Argentina to be agreeing to a better deal with holdouts, like professionals get a better deal than retail investors, and he was representing retail investors. 
all sorts of stories go around about the lock law. One of them that investors came up with it, others it was invented in Argentina. But my take on it is you have to look at the timeline. Argentina launched its deal on January 12th or January 10th, 2005. The key features were announced in June 2004 in Buenos Aires. They didn't change a lot, but the full prospectus was available and the initial roadshow started in early January 2005, and Argentina went around the world having maybe 60, 70, 80 meetings with people. And the law claw didn't come until about the 8th or 9th of February. And the deal went on for maybe six weeks, and it had an early bird date, which is something we do when making public offers, especially with retail investors, is you get something extra if you come in early. In this case, the extra for retail investors was guaranteed allocation or priority allocation of par bonds. And the retail want the par bond, even though it's a smaller coupon rather than a discount bond because they're taking a haircut. But as of that early date, a lot of people weren't coming in. And you had 500,000 retail investors in Italy. You had 50,000 in Japan, something like that, 50,000 in Germany tens of thousands in Austria, lots and lots in Switzerland, but who knows what countries they're from. And you get to the early date, nobody's coming in. And Argentina would never admit it, but I think they were scared. And they've been thinking, is my theory, about this lock law, and they pulled it out of their pocket, and they ran it through Congress, and they said, we're putting this on the table because if anyone has any doubt we are never reopening this deal. If you don't come in, you're not going to get a penny. And when you've got a lot of retail investors around the world, it's scary. I found the chat rooms between Italian investors in 2004 and five talking about it. They were scared. But what's fascinating is the lock law had a life of its own. The lock law created the exit because the Italian banks and their lawyers went in case saw the lock law and they said, you know, this opens a new attack. This is a breach of the bilateral investment treaty between Italy and Argentina. So we can bring them to the exit. So the Italian banks announced to their clients, we will organize a suit and an arbitration attack on Argentina and will pay the legal fees. And while Argentina is saying, we won't pay you a penny, and the banks are saying, don't take it, it's not a good deal, the reality is people have to take the deal because mom and pops with 25,000 euros of bonds don't have the ability to sue. But when the banks say, we'll pay for the suit, they got a couple hundred thousand to hold out. It wasn't enough to block the trade. Argentina got 76%, which shocked everybody. But it started in process this unprecedented litigation in the ICSID, which was never finally resolved. They gave jurisdiction in, a, in 2011, but there was a settlement before there was a final award. So the law claw led to the ICSID. It led to, it probably made it more difficult for Argentina to settle in, on top of the RUFO. And so it had both political and legal consequences far beyond um, what they could have possibly imagined at the time. 
So, Greg, can, the the luck law, as you point out, is one of a number of kind of unique attributes of the Argentine case. And so, I'm I'm wondering though, because I've been thinking about the some of the recent and so far successful litigation uh, against Argentina, and in particular about the $16 billion judgment that was just issued in the Southern District of New York uh, in connection with the expropriation of YPF. Um, and, you know, in, in some respects, a $16 billion judgment held now by a very small subset of creditors is a enormous amount of money that dwarfs anything people were talking about in connection with the 2001 default. Um, so I'm wondering what we what we learned, if anything, from the 15 years Argentina spent litigating with Elliot and the other holdouts about the prospects for enforcing judgments like that today. It was a Jay Newman had a piece in the FT yesterday you may have read. Um, he points out correctly some some important differences there. But I'm just like I'm wondering if there are lessons for what giant creditors uh, like that uh, have to look forward to. Well, thank you. I think I think this is feeding well. The first part of my book is going through the debt restructuring and why is there a Rufo and a lock law and all that stuff. The second part of the book, the middle part, is really focused on the creditors. And one of the myths that was just Elliott versus Argentina, there were hundreds of plaintiffs, big ones, small ones, medium. They brought all sorts of attachment efforts. That Perry Passu was led by Elliott, and that's the third part of the book. But in the middle here, we have this laboratory to study attachment and enforcement against foreign sovereigns. And there's a big lesson here is that it doesn't really work. And the YPF judgment, they are in a worst case, as Mr. Newman points out, they don't have a waiver of sovereign immunity and they don't have a peri passu clause. And my the lesson from the Argentina story is the only thing that ever gave the plaintiffs any leverage was Perry Passu. And the second Judge Grisset took away the injunction, everybody settled because they had no choice or they weren't going to get a lot. The only plaintiffs of all of them, despite many efforts to get anything really, was Dart and Elliott, who did one moderate-sized and one small attachment. And they went after the different plaintiffs, went after airplanes and ships and bank accounts and bond accounts, and it was failure after failure. What happens is there's a perception attachment works because you virtually always get a temporary attachment. You go to the judge in an ex parte, one-sided hearing and say, I found this asset. If you don't attach it temporarily, they're going to take it out of the country. So they get the order but there's always a hearing within two weeks where Argentina can respond and they say, this is a breach of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. They can't keep the asset. The judge reads the law. He reads the facts and says, let it go. It's a big game of catch and release. That's the middle section of the book. There's so much of it, though, that Judge Grisset gets exhausted with Argentina. He doesn't want to manage all this litigation. So, it serves a dramatic purpose that when you finally put Perry Passu on the table, Elliot does in October 
2010, Judge Grisey is very ready to get rid of these cases. Um, but it's hard to collect. And um, there's lots of evidence for the reasons. What is this the sentence um, mark in the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act? You have to find an asset being used for a commercial activity in the United States. And that has to be, at least without a waiver of immunity, that has to be used for the commercial activity that you sued on, which is the particularly hard part. Yeah. And in this in the chapters, we go through an example, and there's the exception it can't the it can't be military and it can't be a central bank asset which have extra super double immunity. We have in the various Argentina cases, there's cases where it's decided in the court the asset wasn't in Argent wasn't in the United States, it was in Argentina. Um, there were cases where it was decided it wasn't being used for a commercial activity. There were cases, one of the cases, the attachment of the 250 million of the private pension fund assets that became public assets after the nationalization in 2008 by the government of Argentina, it was decided that they weren't being used for even a microsecond because Argentina had ordered them the assets back to Argentina as soon as the nationalization came of effect. So every little piece of that sentence is tested in the Argentina cases, and it's fascinating. So, Greg, um, where th this is, this has been so interesting, and we're unfortunately running short on time. And I, I want to ask you at least about a couple of other things that have manifested themselves. And one of them is a product of this same 2005 restructuring, but also partly the 2010, uh, and that's the GDP of warrants. Now, those have blown up in the litigation in the UK, and I, I'm a little fuzzy on what's happening in the US, but it looks like a big judgment is on its way against Argentina in the US as well, in the billions of dollars again. Can you give us a sense of, like, so that, that's part of the whole story that you're telling, but that's continuing and it's continuing in the billions of dollars. And there, there is, we do have waivers of sovereign immunity and pari passu clauses. And, it suggests that, that particular maybe for YPF it's going to be particularly hard, uh, but the GDP warrants that not as hard. It looks like. Well, we could have three sessions on Argentina's GDP warrants. So let me be <laughs> brief. One is there's been lots of discussion, especially in Washington, of GDP warrants, good and debt restructurings. I personally think economically, if you're going to have a big haircut, they're very much warranted. The dispute comes, well, if you give someone a tiny haircut, creditors only give a little debt relief should there be a, a warrant. But the lesson for me here is really about complexity. There were warrants, oil warrants in the 90s, and they were simple. If oil went above a certain price, you got 3% a year on a nominal equivalent to the bonds you took in the Brady Exchange. These are very complicated and they worked well 
but they didn't foresee exactly how it would work if you rebased your economic numbers, which Argentina belatedly did before a payment, I think in late 2013, 2014. And there's a big dispute over whether a little payment was due or not. And um, this, unlike the other issue we discussed, it's really a matter of drafting. Um, I read the document like Argentina. If you read a proviso, there's this 3% cap. If growth in a year is above 3%, then the warrants pay. And if growth is less, then they don't pay. But they defined the 3% in terms of dividing some numbers in a table. And then it seems as if, if those numbers in the table are adjusted, then the 3% numbers don't hold. And Argentina's 2010 offer does hardwire those 3% numbers, but the 2005 offer didn't. And when I read the indenture, which I have many times, I read it like Argentina, but there's room for dispute. Your um, episode about the British litigation was very interesting and suggests Argentina did not argue that there is an ambiguity in the contract, that they just argued that they interpreted it a different way. So I take this as a watch this space. What will this new government with very financially and legal savvy people like Caputo, what are they going to do on appeal? Can they change the story? Um, so I would treat it much more as a forward-looking story. And if you want to delve into to all of it, um, it, it would be an hour or more. So I, I, I then have a backward-looking question as we, as we wrap up, because many of the things that we've been talking about today are things that can be characterized as mistakes, either mistakes of omission, maybe, like the failure to use exit consents, or mistakes of commission in um, sloppy drafting of contract provisions. But I have a another sloppy drafting, uh, backward-looking question, this time about the FRANs. So uh, these were these extraordinary instruments designed to pay a floating rate, but that wound up paying some astronomical, roughly 100% annualized interest after the default. And from what I can tell, are responsible for really a substantial part of the recovery that the cleverer holdout creditors managed to get. If we take the FRANs out of it, they, like if, if those contracts just aren't stupidly drafted to allow this, does Argentina's problem look a whole lot different and a whole lot more manageable? You know, it's hard to separate out one little thing when there's so many pieces here. And Argentina's aggregate settlement in 2016, I have the footnote on the numbers, even with the FRAN payment, isn't all that bad for the very technical reason that many, many of the plaintiffs got a final money judgment in the 2005-6-7, which lowered their accrual on their judgments to the federal statutory rate then around 1%. A small minority of plaintiffs had didn't get final money judgments and were earning their bond coupons. 
and only 300 million of bonds owned by three major plaintiff groups own the Frans. That was a claim of about 3 billion of the final 10 billion of payment. They all took a 25% haircut um, under threat of the injunction being released. But I see it really differently. It's like countries need to be mindful of how claims accrue. A lot of Argentina's problems in these economic ridiculous economically ridiculous results is that it took so long to resolve these problems. If Argentina had resolved the problems in 05, 06, 07, then there wouldn't have been so much interest on the frowns and they wouldn't have gone to 10, per, 10 times par. So you have this circular problem. Well, we couldn't settle early because we did the RUFO. Well, they did the RUFO and the lock law because they didn't have a relationship with the IMF. So I tend to see the heart of the problem as a breakdown of the relationship with the IMF, because if the IMF were standing next to them in the debt restructuring, they wouldn't have had to sell it on threats, and maybe the Italian banking system wouldn't have attacked them, et cetera, and so on and so on. And they would have gotten 90% success rate. There would have been far less litigation, and Judge Grisey never would have done the Perry Passu injunction. So it's kind of very hard to pick one thing out. Mark, in our paper we did, which was in um, the Duke, um, the da um, UC Davis Law School um, Law Review in February, we go through all the math and of the accruals and of the friends. Um, but my answer is, if you'd settled it in 2005, if you they'd made a slightly better offer to the Fran holders, they could have taken the original settlement, or if they had somehow settled everything early. But that's where I get to the lock law being the root of all evil. Because you went to Congress and get the lock law, the ministry was not free to just settle stuff, because it would have to go back to Congress and said, remember that promise we would never pay a penny to any holdout we've changed our mind. So you look weak, and you also put in the RUFO, which says we will never pay a penny until December 31st, 2014, or else we have to top up everybody else. So everything has both legal, but also political characteristics in a kind of quintessentially Argentine way. <laughs> uh a a good way to wrap up, I think, since um, it does seem to be a quintessentially Argentine uh, fifteen year saga, and maybe we'll be treated to another fifteen year saga down the road. But Greg, uh, I, I've read the book. I, I have to confess, but I'm looking forward to when it comes out uh, on February first. Um, uh, I think it's going to be a real treat for a lot of people to read. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. This was great.